It is pornography. It's pornography. <laughs> so, so we now have a porno website going on. This is commonsense.org. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Virkula. This episode is for the final full week of March 2021. You have a theme of the week this week. The world is falling apart. That's the that's the theme of the week. But it's better than it could be because the world could be falling apart and we could be clueless and not know that the world is falling apart. And part of that is in Monday's script, uh, which is is talking about Chuck Todd, and it's a, the, it's called The Sound of Sino Silence. And Chuck Todd suggested on Meet the Press that we need to be careful about criticizing China because criticizing China may cause some lunatics at various locales in our country to have anti-Asian hate crimes. And, of course, it still doesn't appear that the Atlanta shooting was actually an Asian hate crime, but whether it was or it wasn't, and we'll get to more on that on Thursday's script, uh, which is nightmare narratives, but there doesn't appear to be some giant anti-Asian hatred uh, going on in America. To whatever degree there is, I don't think it's tied to pointing out atrocities being committed by the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, you know, you can always make the point that, you know, it's helpful to say the Chinese Communist Party. It's helpful to remind people that this isn't the Chinese people. They're completely disenfranchised, Um, even worse than us. Uh, I mean, they are completely, they don't vote. They don't have a vote. And so, you know, anyway, it's good to make that difference, but almost everyone, we all the time say, oh, the U.S. did this today. Well, not every person in the United States of America did that. The U.S. government did that. So um, it is, to me, it was just frightening to think that these highfalutin media people doing a show like Meet the Press, which has been on forever, you know, for the establishment folks, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's their TV Bible almost. I mean, it's a, it's a big show, a long-running show. And for them to have and for Chuck Todd to have, I mean, not that I'm shocked. I can't stand Chuck Todd. So the, the fact that he's wrong about something else is, uh, is, is not any shock. But this is, this is really stupid that somehow we shouldn't mention or sh- we, we need to like whisper that, oh, there's, there's a million Uyghurs in concentration camps uh, in some country, but don't be mad at the Chinese. I mean, no one in their right mind is mad at the Chinese people. No one. I mean, it, if, if some lunatic mentally ill or some sadist somewhere wants to use that as an excuse, maybe that can't be helped. Let's put them in jail or in an institution as soon as possible. But for the rest of us, this is complete crap. And, and it, it's, it's important because, you know, all of this hate crime, and I, and I want to point out something on this script, and it's uh, uh, James Gill, who does the graphics, did a wonderful uh, graphic here. And it's, it, basically says it shows some folks, but the message of it 
your vote is a hate crime. And where all of this is tied together and hate crimes and so on, and China, and somehow don't criticize China, if it were up to China, voting is a hate crime in China. Anything we say would offend that regime. This is a seriously sick, twisted regime, which is rapidly becoming the most you know, economically powerful regime on the planet, has tremendous military power, and is regularly taking away people's freedom. Uh, and, and we return to concentration camps. Well, you know, that's, that's going to get people upset. Obviously, they should be upset at China, uh, the, the government, not the people. But of course, there's, there's no indication that people are upset at the Chinese people or people in America who are Chinese or other Asian people in the United States of America. And to the degree they are, the solution is not to, hey, let's not talk about what's happening in our wor world. Because of course, if we don't know what's happening with China, millions of people, millions and millions could lose their freedom, lose their lives. And as I point out at the end of the script, uh, you know, obviously, always watch your words. You don't want to say something stupid or false, uh, but don't fear speaking out because the lives you save may be Asian. Yeah. Now, what offended me about Chuck Todd, as he usually does, is the way they just sort of talk down to us like children. Uh, because it really is, they really do look at us like children. Yes. I mean, that's, I mean, you're going to be stupid and you're going to, I mean, or those people over there, it's really not, you know, the watcher of NBC. It's always the people who don't watch him that are the bad people. But there's a really bizarre talk down equality of the whole thing. It's very condescending. Well, television is that way. Te television news, the morning programs. I mean, it's always like, here's how you tie your shoe and stuff, you know? So you're always kind of thinking, you don't think much of us. And I never wrote anything about this particular thing I'm about to mention because I, I didn't think it really rose to a script. We only have five scripts a week and, you know, we want to use them for something really important. But uh, I was really offended by Biden during the campaign. It seemed that every time, you know, when he got in trouble or there was like a little back and forth, he would look into the screen, you know, the television camera, which is a smart thing to do. I'm sure they told him, if you get in trouble, look into the television camera and say, I'm talking to the American people, blah, 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 and talk directly to us. And it was, you know, a very smart device, a very good way to communicate. But every time he communicated, it was all about us at our kitchen table, not knowing how we could possibly make it up all night, worried about everything. And of course, some of us are worried about stuff and some of us are up all night because we're, we're working, trying to get something done. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not good, but he was always, he always had this view in my, this is the way I took it. I mean, obviously people could take it different ways. The way I took it, it was he always had this attitude of us as not children, but just lesser beings who were having a tough time making it. You know, he's doing great. And all the guys in Washington, they've made it. 
Oh boy, have they made it on the gravy train that uh, that we pay for and that they created. But you know, we we're having a tough time making it. We're just and and they've got to help. And that's that's I think what his world is about is that they're the saviors who run government, which saves everybody all the time. And if Republicans would get out of the way and taxpayers and and the rich would just pay their fair share, then they could save everybody from everything at all times. Now, on Thursday, you actually dealt with the substance of the point of his piece, right? Because he was worried about the, the craze about talking about Asian violence or violence against Asians in America. Now, it's a complicated subject in part because they seem to be talking about it as if it's white people committing crimes against Asians. And it really doesn't seem to be the case. But there was that Atlanta shooting which was unfortunate. I mean, it was really an awful, an awful situation. And there were Asians killed in that. But there were Koreans, as I understand. Kore- Korean sex workers, right? See, I think that's why, in, in part, there's some excuse for the story not being well reported. Although, when you, when you take into account that it seems like every story these days is not well reported, including that I think the whole... You know, uh, he was having a bad day, which was made out to be the one of the policemen had mentioned that the shooter was having a bad day. And it was reported as if the sheriff was kind of going, oh, it was a bad day. You know, killing killing eight people is really even beyond a bad day for most of us. And uh, and but it turns out he was saying what the shooter had said and and of course that was run that he should be and this guy on on this sheriff who had done it on uh facebook i think had had referred to the china virus as the china virus <laughs> so he's obviously a racist evil white supremacist or whatever but he didn't shoot anybody well the sheriff didn't shoot anybody right you know the sheriff didn't well <laughs> he didn't shoot anybody but it's almost as bad uh but I, you know, like, I think uh, what Trump has said, Kung flu, and referred to the virus that way, I find that offensive. I find that just, one, I find it low class. Two, I find it offensive in just that it's like, what are you, what are you trying to say about this virus? If, if you call it the China virus, there's something there. You're saying this is the virus that came from China. And of course, we have always called it the CCP virus, the Chinese Communist Party virus, because that's really where it came from in the sense that, one, it may have come from a lab that they're running. Uh, two, they're one of the few countries in the world that have encouraged these wild animal farming in urban areas and all over the place because they wanted people to eat. And they ran a country that couldn't seem to produce enough food to allow people to eat um, because of their policies. And anyway... This virus, there's studies that have shown, you know, what, 90% plus of the deaths could have been prevented had China quickly said, here's what we've got. And and we're not talking about being slow to say, here's what we're, we've got alone. We're talking about actively saying we don't have that when it can be shown that they knew. In other words, human uh, transmission, they knew about when they were saying there's no evidence of human transmission. That is a big lie. And it's a lie that's killed millions of people. And, um, and so 
Anyway, I'm not sure what I, what, what that was even tied to now that I've uh, ma- well, made Well, it's that- pretty tangential to the Atlanta shooting. And the Colorado shooting was a Near Eastern Asian man shooting up 10 white people. Well, uh, near Asia, I mean Middle Eastern, yes, and 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 of course, you know what we what we. And he looked real white, by the way. He looked white. I don't know if you saw him. He did. Yes, yes, he did. Yes, he did. But it's it's, you know, with all of this, you know, to 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 just cut to the bottom line and then come back and talk about it a little bit. Part of the point, like I had someone uh, ask me uh, on on Facebook, uh, are you saying there's no uh, structural racism and and of course there is structural racism. I mean, some some of it's anti-white racism, but some of it is you know when when you have different rules, there's a lot of structural anti-Asian racism, and there's other structural in the sense that you know you create stereotypes and you do different things, and this is there's societal things, but the whole point of this piece is not to argue that no one's a racist anywhere or to say oh don't ever talk about. It. It's to say, stop throwing it at each other. And especially in these cases where you're wrong. In Boulder, they were throwing around stuff about white Christian terrorists and so on. Well, it turns out he's not white and he's not Christian. And frankly, he's a murderer, but he's not really a terrorist because he's not hes not trying to use terror to accomplish some political goal. He's a lunatic who is off his rocker and has a weapon and is killing people. And maybe we'll find out more. In any of these cases, we could find out that everything we think we know is wrong and it's the opposite. And it wouldn't change my basic view that it's stupid to throw these around. It's stupid to throw these cases around when you're thinking about gun control. Don't you want to think about the vast majority of instances? I mean, not that you would totally discount these cases, but these shouldn't be uppermost in your mind because these are the rarest. And of course, all we hear all the time is that these were these shootings are happening more and more. Well, it turns out, no, no, they're not. They're happening less and less. But hey, that's not going to stop anybody, including the news media, from speaking about it in such a way that it's more and more. And of course, that's why everyone receiving that news is going, well, can you believe it? More and more in our society. It's it's a big problem. And here we've got people trying to make race into a big deal when it doesn't appear to be the case. This Middle Eastern guy sounds like he was bullied some. There's some initial reports of that, maybe that. But it's, it wasn't about some jihad. That's not what he was doing. It wasn't, a, it wasn't something that fits into the narrative, oh, we're the terrorists or something. And the, the It seemed thing, very personal. It seemed, yes. it seemed personal in a kind of weird and sick way. Yes, yes, because it wasn't clear why he went to that place, whereas there was more connection with the killer, the murderer in Atlanta, and and you mentioned, um, and this may have been what we were talking before, but uh, the Atlanta thing has been covered badly. And part of the reason, it, it, there's been very little mention of whether these places, there was sex work going on. And yet then there was a separate article in the Washington Post about that. 
even though they're not mentioning it in the in the regular article. And, and I think part of that is, again, their narrative. They've, they've got to feed their narrative. Their narrative's about this being racist. So they can't say anything negative and they can't pretend that, and of course it would be wrong to pretend that somehow if there was sex work going on, that this is just, oh, this is the way the Asians are. Uh, as if there's no other sex work going on in every single culture everywhere. But but I don't, you know, there's been so little coverage of it. It's almost like we live in a society where, oh, heaven forbid they cover it. Heaven forbid they tell us the information. Who knows whether we'll take it right? And gosh, it's just again and again. And uh, the other the other uh, narrative, because we had three, a friend had posted three different narratives that were pretty much wrong that uh, that you know, are out there and that progressives are pushing along race lines. And the other narrative is that had it be a, been a BLM protest at the Capitol, that, you know, they all would have been gunned down and massacred and so on. And of course, we can never know what would have happened. It's some hypothetical. People can believe whatever they want. We don't know. But there was uh, a commentary we did, uh, you know, back, I believe it was uh, uh, late January, where we were talking about what happened on the 6th. And um, I'm going to forget the guy's name, but I think I have it in the footnote here. Uh, oh, David Bernstein. Uh, and and uh, he did a piece. It was at Reason, uh, Vol of uh, Conspiracy. Uh, and, and he just looked at the protests around the country and what the police response was and who was injured or hurt or what different things happened. And it's... It, it's just obvious that uh, the Capitol rioters were treated more harshly than the average rioter in the country during the summer in BLM protests. And again, in the same way that someone going to a BLM protest who's protesting peacefully and there's, there's you know, the majority of people who go to BLM protests go there and protest peacefully. The majority of the people who came to the rally at the ellipse and listen to Trump or walk to the Capitol, they they were totally peaceful in protesting. So in all these cases, we're not pretending that all the Trump people, you know, were rioters at the Capitol or that all the people who went to BLM protests were rioters or something. And in fact, uh, I went to a protest here in, in uh, uh, Prince William County. It'd be interesting if if media or others would look at that and say, this is a Black Lives Matter protest because I saw it as a criminal justice protest, and I and I don't think it was really organized by Black Lives Matter. So, in many cases, you know, this and again, it goes to this nightmare narrative: taking outrageous, murderous examples and grabbing the bloody shirt and waving it around is not how mankind has generally made progress. It's it's looking more, I think, in, intellectually and rationally at, at what's happening in all of these cases. And um, and this this uh, next week, I'm, I'm going to be writing something about a, um, uh, a, a case involving race. And, and these are things that that we could fix going forward in Oakland, California. We'll talk about it more next week. But in Oakland, California, I just read this article. They have a basic income 
universal basic income, of course, it's not universal, but uh, basic income where they, they want a, a pilot program to send money uh, every month to 600 people who are below, you know, some level of poverty. 600 people who are black, Asian, Latino, anything but white. And um, and we'll find out uh, next week. You'll find out. Uh, I already know, but uh, but why they they have a rationale for it, which is the really really frightening thing. And um, and but but if we you know think about a, a world in which laws are made on race like that, that if it doesn't matter whether you're poor or not, if you're white. No, no, we can't help you. If you're poor, tough. Now, is that, you know, if you believe in, in helping poor people, isn't that sort of racist? Anyway, we don't have a script yet, but <laughs> come next week, we'll be there. Well, do you want to go back to Tuesday's piece uh, from socialism to fascism? Yes, and this piece, I got a lot of feedback. Did you? I didn't look this week about how people responded. I got feedback from different people that I just communicate with, and I got emails and, and uh, some on Facebook. And I'm trying to think whether there was something at the website as well on, on this. But I, I think it's an interesting dynamic. What's happening doesn't seem to be in dispute. The socialism of Venezuela has really morphed into fascism. And um, and we we even in the piece get to quote the great uh, uh, Sheldon Richmond saying that fascism is basically socialism with a capitalist veneer, and uh, but but in in Venezuela now they are uh, making deals with private companies to run different things, and they're turning what was a more socialist and dysfunctional economy into and and corrupt into a more fascist and somewhat dysfunctional and corrupt uh economy because of course even with you know if, if the state makes all the decisions they can reward different companies but this is this is uh you know mercantilism mercantilism is almost too nice a name uh for it although mercantilism is a horrible thing and uh and and basically what uh, arguably, and, they, and you could call it fascism, but uh, what arguably the American Revolution was against was mercantilism and the East India Tea Company and and uh, and and the whole way of doing business in that way. Um, but I I think you know if you if you look at it, it's like looking at at China and calling it communist and you realize you know it seems like it's a much more that you have this hierarchy uh this dictatorship that says go make money go make money and uh and if you don't make money then you're in trouble if you make money you know you're okay and and that's you know in some ways that's better than just being communist and saying, hey, we're going to tell you to do everything and it's not going to work and we're all going to starve to death. Uh, you know, I mean, there's there's bad and then there's much worse, but it's it's uh, it's not where we want to be in the future. And um, but but I, I, I think. Looking at Venezuela, 
which is not is not Cambodia. It's not a it's not a country that was always poor. Uh, you know, Venezuela was the richest country in in South America uh, for a long time, and arguably still should be. And and oil, different things have happened with the oil economy, but come on, uh, it's nice, still nice. To, it's always nice to have oil, and they've got a lot of it. So, uh, and and there are people who will argue, oh, it's all the U.S. Uh, and the the CIA and and so on and so on. And I look at it and I think, you know, we, we can't know everything that's happened. And if someone alleges that, oh, there's all kinds of things you don't know about that are happening behind the scenes and the U.S. is evil and terrible and doing it all. Well, <laughs> well, I know enough about the government to know evil and terrible. Well, that, that, that's possibly correct, uh, but not always correct. The interesting thing to me is you look at, OK, if that's true, if if were all the problems caused by uh, embargo, by sanctions? No, there were all kinds of problems before those things took effect. Uh, the people who have been arrested and tortured and the and people fired on in who were protesting uh, or run over by a tank. Did the U.S. force them to do that? Because it seems to me that that there are some choices that were made by Maduro and his cabal. And those were really, really bad choices. Corrupt, manical, vicious, murderous. Uh, and, and so I look at it and I think, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the US is doing different things. And of course, sanctions are, can be devastating uh, on an economy. Of course, there's other countries that are trying to help, and Cuba's helped them, and and Russia has some, and so on. Um, but there's certain things that have been a hundred percent under their control that are tyrannical, and so there's no there's no excusing it all off that the U.S. you know, uh, and especially when you when okay, so what did the U.S. do precisely other than you know sanctioning and. And we can argue about whether a government has the power to tell businesses they can't, can or can't trade in, in certain cases. But obviously, in a full-blown war, uh, you know, governments are going to say, no, you can't. <laughs> you can't sell arms to the other side. So I, I think that, in you know, when you look at the situation in Venezuela, um, you can make all kinds of, you know, counter charges against the United States. But it's very, very difficult to defend uh, what what has happened there. And in essence, socialism, fascism, communism, authoritarianism, it's all people in government, you know, just putting the screws to everybody, sometimes by actually putting the screws to people and other time by threatening to do that and by controlling the whole economy and by grabbing more and more and more control in a climate of complete fear. And it's, it's, I look at it and I think, uh, I remember seeing a video in uh, Hong Kong and, and, uh, and, 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 or maybe it was Tiananmen Square where they were saying, you know, you're talking about democracy and, uh, and, but you don't have that much experience with democracy. And the, the students said, no, no, we don't, we don't. And we recognize, you know, that we don't, you know, we don't fully know all of those things. But he said, we have a ton of experience 
with no democracy. And we know that's not what we want. And I thought, you know, that's that's what is the case all over the, the world with these different regimes. You either have some rights or you don't. And we've we've pointed out many times things like the United States may be the only country in the world where the public actually has the firepower to defend itself from its government. Uh, there are real world things and real freedoms that I think we have. And I, I spent my whole life complaining about the lack of freedom here and the loss of freedom. But we've got a ton of it. And I plan to protect every bit that we have real, you know, kind of a sense that you can walk down the street and not be uh, killed or arrested uh, for what you say. And I can plan to protect all of it I can and get as much more as, as I can possibly. And that means not moving to Venezuela. And probably not moving to Portland, Oregon, either. <laughs> did that work or did that work? Portlandia problem. And and wasn't it you who, I, who we were talking about how I kind of like the show Portlandia, but I've never really watched it. It's like I've seen, I think I've seen one episode. I've seen little bits and pieces. It's kind of funny and so on, but I've never really sat down and watched it. But I think Portlandia, the program, uh, which I don't know that it's still running. Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, but it's the best thing going for Portland right right now. Um, and it's it's uh, it's ideology run amok. I remember being in Portland uh, years ago, um, and you know it was a nice town. You know it was a very avant garde lefty. Uh, town uh but it was a nice place you didn't feel i didn't feel unsafe and i think uh i think people feel unsafe well and they should feel unsafe it's, it's, it's run by mobs now and you describe uh one couple um young man and a young woman uh as reported in reason magazine by a piece from nancy rommelman which I thought was a pretty good piece, and I said that to you because I thought it was such an interesting piece. Yes, it was a good piece. Um, interesting enough, and 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 this the the boy and the girl. Um, there's there's in her piece she talks about uh, people throwing a bucket of diarrhea uh, at uh, folks at the federal building, um, and you just think, really, that's the. You know, you, you think of different protests around the world through time. Is that really the the way that that you get change or something? It's just insane. And it was interesting. She said uh, that the, the boy said, well, do, you know, do you believe that property is worth more than human lives? And it's like, oh, property, property's worth more than diarrhea. I know that. And then the girl uh, said to her, do you believe the police should be allowed to murder people. And of course, there was one uh, deadly police shooting in Portland, but it, it certainly before is clear that, that it was, yes. That year before then. Yes, yes. But it's it's the idea, I mean, the, 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 the riots in Portland uh, were off of the, of the George Floyd uh, killing in Minneapolis. So it's and and look, uh, having sympathy for what's happening around the country, around the world, I'm all for that. Why you would destroy stuff in Portland 
because of something that was done in Minneapolis is a whole not, or, or why you would destroy it, even if it happened in Portland, for that matter, is is kind of a, a whole other story. But it's it's uh, well, and, and we had several. Uh, we've done a number of things on Portland, partly because they have allowed uh, a level of uh, fascist socialists, you know, Antifa versus, you know, Proud Boys or whatever violence uh, again and again and have allowed not only have they been soft on the violence, but then because of the violence, they've canceled things like the what was it? Was it the Rose Parade? It's it's the City of Roses. And I'll get it since I'm, I'm not as familiar with it. I'll get it confused with Pasadena, California. But um, but they, they uh, it was a year or two ago. I remember writing something about it. And uh, and it was because they had canceled the thing because they were afraid they couldn't keep businesses safe because they'd been threatened. Um, it, it, and now know, businesses are just liquidated downtown. It's just it is a, a war zone. It looks like a war zone. Yes, this is this you know, and is it these businesses that you know it it just doesn't seem to be a very good strategy for solving some of these problems, especially because as we continually point out, the public is overwhelmingly in favor of all kinds of police reforms. And that if it, it just seems like, no, we want to, we want to have a revolution or something instead of solving these problems. And and nowhere worse than, than Portland. And of course we did do the script about the mayor who is so woke. He's he's actually gotten unwoke. He's gotten wokishly unwoke. Uh, but but he uh, he went to the protests so that he could tell him, you know, he's with him against Trump. And of course, they, his security detail has to like fight their way to the stage. They're getting in fistfights with different people and so on. So it's not at all safe. And he goes up there and he's doing some rah-rah thing and they're, they're yelling that he's a jerk and so on. Uh, it, this is, he's playing to this mob who one, can't stand him, and and to me, that's the only good thing I know about Mayor Wheeler, is that that mob can't stand him. That's that's his only claim to fame, as far as I'm concerned. And and so what what message are you sending? And we do this again and again. It's like I'm and look, I'm not Mr. Law and Order. I've always been, <laughs> you know, pretty happy go lucky. Let's not, you know, let's let's keep Andy Griffith in mind or, you know, Sheriff Taylor and let's not sweat the stuff, you know, the small stuff. Um, but you cannot allow just wanton destruction. You cannot allow people to be accosted on the street and threatened. You can't allow parts of cities to, you know, and, and the truth is, if these cities were like saying, hey, we're we are, you know, um, seceding from the United States of America and, you know, and we have a new constitution, I might be somewhat sympathetic to the, what they're trying to do. These are hoodlums trying to grab a few blocks. I mean, and in, in Seattle, there were bad circumstances. In Portland, there have been bad circumstances. This is not a political movement. This is a bunch of jerks that because it serves, I guess, the interest of, you know, having this 
movement out there, this unrest. Um, and and I, I wonder during the, the election year whether part of the almost support for the unrest, nobody calling it what it was, was to create a climate in which there's unrest and in which we need someone calm like Sleepy Joe to be the, you know, to be the leader. Well, sure, this has happened before in, in history. In both Russia and Germany, Russia before the Russian Revolution and during the Russian Revolution, and in uh, Germany, uh, Weimar Germany, there was a lot of uh, tolerance for uh, radicals by the liberal elites. We call them liberals, but of course, you know, you know, we're not talking about our kind of liberals. Uh, but the, you know, just just the, the, that class of people, because they gained some power. I mean, it's it's what I call it's what Sam Francis called anarcho tyranny is that you you let out the anarchists that is the criminals and the people who are just against law and order and like the bully people right and then you crack down on peaceful people for infractions right so you're really tough on a normal person who doesn't do his taxes right or or uh, has an environmental civil you know civil infraction and you just you can take away their property you do you just do all sorts of horrible things to a normal peaceful per person but then you ramp up the, the let the violence go and that calls that gets a lot of normal people to want to support more power the state power they want more power because they see chaos everywhere but and it makes everybody anxious, and, and anxious is a anxiety. General anxiety is a really important point for increasing statism in society. That is increasing the presence of, right. of very draconian and very very coercive measures everywhere at every level. I think that's the problem with the coronavirus is how well, they handle the pandemic. It's, you, you need a devil. Yes, you need yeah. the bad guy, and crime is that bad guy, and and so in some ways it's it's. They don't want to fix all the crime. If there's no crime problem, if there's not going to be any crimes tomorrow or next week or next month, what do we need the police for? Although I have to say, and we haven't yet written about it, so we won't talk about it too much. But uh, isn't it interesting that all of a sudden, you know, we, we had all these calls for gun control. The police will protect us. They should have the guns. Nobody should have it. Then we had that the police can't be trusted. They're all racist. And so we need to just defund the police. And then, of course, I guess the argument would be nobody should have guns. We'll just outlaw them all, but we won't have any police to stop anybody from having guns. So the people who have guns will be the only people who have guns will be criminals. I mean, it's it, the circular thinking on all of this is ridiculous. And it, it, is, it is worth knowing that we're, we don't have, like, uh, it isn't as if this is some modern phenomena that somebody goes off and kills a bunch of people. It has happened throughout time. Now, we have weapons that are better than they were, you know, 100 years ago. But I don't think the problem is the weapons. I think the problem is people. And, uh, and you know, there there is stuff, I think, that mental health wise and others that hopefully is as we get a little smarter, no more, uh, you know, can be done about it. Yeah, um, this is a fascinating subject. And uh, I just have begun reading uh, Elias Kennedy's Crowds in Power. And he begins uh, in a really interesting way. Uh, and people might want to look into this book because uh, he mentions that we have one really, really strong social fear 
and that's of being touched and not knowing who's touching us. And and this is a very primal fear. And then, so the, the hand in the dark, you know, being touched by somebody in the dark is just creeps us out. But there's one place where this doesn't bother us. That's in a mob. That's when the crowd becomes a mob. Now, he doesn't put it like this, but that's the word I'm going to be using. And in a mob, people change their whole psychological makeup and they allow themselves to touch and be touched because something else takes over. And his argument is that political power is is uh, somehow connected to that effect, that propensity in human nature, is that the, the importance of mobs uh, in, in, in a state. So uh, when you're for democracy... Oh, the, the mobs is the good part. The touching and being touched. I mean, this is, this is pretty much a PG-13 uh, type of show, Tim. I, you know, I don't know. About... Well, you know, I, I actually love crowds that are inchoate. That is, you know, just a downtown. Well, I, I mean, I spent my early uh, years in, in, in a first city I was ever in was, as an adult, was in Portland, Oregon. And that's one of my interests in the subject. And I loved the crowds at rush hour because they were crowds that didn't have a purpose. And they were, and, and everybody kept their distance. There was very little touching. You're right. There's very little. And if it was, you know, it was, it was the kind of touching we all could understand. No one was grabbing at you, right? That, right. That's definitely a bad thing. Uh, but a mob is a very different critter. Uh, that is the, the sub, a group that's like they have now running through uh, and setting buildings on fire and throwing buckets of diarrhea in places, which, you know, really is one of the sickest things I heard all year. I mean, that shows a level of taboo that is quite astounding. Yes, and I think I think some of it is people who like the maybe they're addicted to adrenaline or but they like to smash things or they like to do stuff that's outrageous or you know so on and so it's you know you also have that type of thing especially you know when there aren't consequences for stuff people people you know might do it again what the boy said the young man said you know you know do rights to property uh, you know are, are they more important than, than people Throwing diarrhea around is against people. Property is yes. for people. That is just it's it is such a non sequitur. His response is so leftist, in my opinion, because it's just throwing around this little can thing that we've all been hearing for 150 years from socialists. You know, rights to property are bad, and people are right. People, you know, people over property like it. Property is what we use to defend ourselves against people who are doing bad things, like throwing around diarrhea, and. Right. Uh, and we, we all should know this. This should be really obvious. And to me, Portland's just a great example of, uh, because that's one of the points of your piece, was that not only are the nihilistic anarchists nuts, and they are nuts, they're crazy, they, just, they, they don't have any ideas of facts or they don't have any context, but the politicians have completely caved because they don't have any ideas to properly defend property. They don't have the ideas anymore, right? They've lost them. They should all be fired. Well, it it their narrative makes it tough for them to defend property, right? Their narrative is that anybody who needs anything should have it, and we're at fault that they didn't already have it, right? And, and so they they can't really start defending property, or where will it lead? Friday's piece was a little different. No no culture, no future. Um, which you know we didn't really delve into the culture part of this so much this that was something that was that was scribbled on uh on a naked body and in fact we have if you go to thisiscommonsense.org 
on Friday, no culture, no future. There is a naked picture of a woman there on the website. I'm not going to be in trouble because it just shows her face, but her <laughs> face is totally nude. And uh, anyway, this is, uh, and I'll mess up her last name, but this is a, a French actress, Corinne Massario. It looks like Massiero to me, but Mas I don't know how to pronounce Mas it. Massiero, yeah. yeah. But I, we should say that the naked face in the age of masks, that's just a great thing. We, we're for nude faces. <laughs> it is pornography. It's pornography. <laughs> so, so we now have a porno website going on. This is commonsense.org. But, uh, but anyway, she's not wearing a mask. But she uh, was a presenter at the French, the Cesar Awards. I don't know. All these things sound Italian. I know nothing about Italian or French or uh, the languages themselves, but uh, I've been to both places. Uh, but anyway, the Cesar Awards are kind of the French Oscars. And, uh, and so she wore this uh, uh, thing that was... Uh, a yellow vest that said no culture, no future. And then she came on later with this bloody donkey costume, this big donkey head and donkey costume and so on. And, you know, pretty, pretty artsy in kind of the arts weird type way. And, uh, and then she removed that costume and was naked and had no culture, no future uh, scribbled uh, on her naked front and on her naked back. Uh, give us back art, Jean, in in French. And Jean is the French uh, prime minister, Jean Castex. Uh, anyway, a very uh, kind of normal, you know, uh, protest demonstration event at, at one of these, uh, you know, awards ceremonies. But the difference is that her whole point was against the lockdowns and uh, and that these lockdowns are destroying theaters and destroying the arts and, uh, you know, that, that something needs to be done about it. And there have been, as we've talked about before on these podcasts, I think we've done a couple of, of scripts talking about it, but over the course of the last year, there have been in, in the United States, the, the tone and, and, you know, maybe other people have a different sense of it. But the, the sense I've gotten has been the United States has had the worst performance on the pandemic of any country, that it's all been messed up. And that most of the reason it's been messed up is that we haven't listened well enough to all that we haven't worn our masks or two masks or seven masks as effectively as we should have. We went to spring break in Florida and walked along the beach or something, uh, which, you know, continually gets, uh, gets people going crazy that there's just a mass spreading event when of course, as I understand it, there's not a single documented case of outside transmission uh, of the of uh, COVID nineteen, so I mean it's it's uh, anyway. There has been tremendous protests throughout Europe, around the world, over the different lockdowns, 
my view is freedom. There's no lockdown in freedom. And I think it, it look, if, if I were older and had some, some uh, things that could become comorbidities, I'd lock myself down. I'd lock everybody out. I'd do things to protect myself. Uh, and I think there were times where they could have voluntarily gotten all kinds of business shutdown and all kinds of mediation uh, policies implemented, but do it freely. Don't just shut everything down. And now they seem to think they can shut down and shut down and shut down for the rest of time. And we're going to stay you know, rich and prosperous. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be a, a, good, uh, a good fit. Uh, you said mediation, you meant mitigation. That's one of the problems I have with podcasts generally. Every time we make a mistake, it's very hard to correct ourselves. And if you, if you don't notice it, and then if, you, then if then now I've noticed it and corrected it, now I've seen like a, I've usurped my place, you know. No, 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 it's good. It is good to correct stuff like that because because you know I mean I'm, I'm, people probably knew what I meant, but but they might not have. So on my podcast, uh, my guest and I both couldn't remember something that we both knew real well. But we couldn't remember the word. How many times do you cannot remember that word? And it was the tarot cards. I couldn't remember tarot. And at the end of it, I would plan on, oh, I have to, I have to make a correction at the end. But I forgot. And so then, of course, uh, people, you know, comment on it. Well, I guess it gives them something to do, so that's fine. Anyway, the France thing was kind of interesting. But you, one of your main points of that was that uh, once again, the major media really isn't covering uh, the lockdown protests around the world, uh, which is one of the reasons this woman had to go out and do something kind of silly. Yes. And and one of the things I point out is that the story that we used, that was the best story on this that I found, was LifeSite News, which is a pro-life, pro-family you know, website that covers all kinds of news, but from that vantage point. And it was a, it was a pretty decent story. Um, and a lot of these sites, I don't know if that's the, the uh, uh, it seems like I've used that site before, but, but you know, they have good, good content and I'm not putting them down for that, uh, but that they're, they're really focused on something else a little bit. They're not the mainstream media. They don't quite have the reach that the Washington Post and the New York Times does where their stories are going in almost every local paper in the whole country. And so when the New York Times and the Washington Post don't cover something, and if the TV news doesn't cover something, and thus their local news doesn't cover it, and their local newspaper doesn't cover it, and on Facebook they're calling each other racists or something, um, when are they going to find out that all over the world they're having trouble with these lockdowns? And we're going to find out after the fact that how devastating this was to kids, suicide rates, other uh, death rates and so on, I think. And and people, uh, we're going to read the stories as if who would have ever thought, even though people like us were saying you're going to have all kinds of adverse reactions to these ridiculous things. And again, because you're forcing everybody to to do things that may not work for them. I, I you know, I, it, it seems to me early on in this that if you would have said to business people, I mean, if you would, as a leader, ask for the public, for the wisdom of crowds, not crowds in power, but the wisdom of crowds, how can we better do this? How can we, how can we do some of these things? How can you open your business and be safe? What's the safest way to do it? 
instead of people being told there's nothing they can do, they would have been figuring out how to do that. And and we would have had less economic catastrophe. The other thing, just real quick, and and is that so much of the catastrophe has been at lower economic levels. And that the wealthy folks have not faced the same things. They can work for their home and, and you know, they, they don't miss a paycheck. And, and so uh, it's easy for some people to say, hey, these lockdowns will save lives without thinking that, you know, it may mean that my kid doesn't go to college or that, the, you know, there, there's all kinds of trade-offs. And if you're not feeling any of the brunt of the lockdown, uh, it gets a lot easier to advocate it. Yeah, I would argue that there's a better case that a, the pro-abortion crowd makes against pro-lifers, you know, the, the, against men, is that if you don't have a uterus, you don't you don't get have a right to talk about abortion. That's a line we hear, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's just that's just the thing people say, and you can sort of there's a logic to it. If you don't have any skin in the game, or it doesn't seem obvious, you know, if it's not your issue, maybe you should be a, you know let up a little bit. There's something to that. Well, there's a real big thing is if you have everything to gain and nothing to lose by a policy and other people have everything to lose and nothing to gain by a policy, maybe you should be shutting up about it because those other people have a, have a, have a lot more to lose and you're inflicting a great deal of harm on them. But I think that the thing that's about the lockdowns, it's becoming quite clear, and, and even the mask mandates, is they don't work. They're, if you look at cross state, cross-country, cross-regional, inter-regional uh, statistics, there's no correlation between uh, the shapes of those curves and when and where and when they didn't put in place any strictures. There's reasons now to understand why that's the case, that masks don't work, for instance. There's reasons to understand why lockdowns are actually bad for this disease. Uh, and even, and the very idea of waiting for a you know, let's just hunker down until we get a vaccine also may have really negative consequences. There's epidemiological reasons to believe that, uh, to, to really doubt the, the main narrative. But we're not being told them because, of course, that isn't in the interests of people in power, which includes the media, apparently. And also your point, I like, I like your point about, you know, if, if we hadn't been commanded to do things, we would have done them better. I think that's true. And for one thing, that would have meant that if we hadn't been commanded uh, to engage in various mitigation efforts, right? Just we then might have been more encouraged to have an open inquiry about which ones work, rather than to have a policy that must be promoted because it serves, well, the vaccine attempt. That's one thing that's obviously being pushed around the world: are vaccines. Well, in in the end, the argument is always. We can't afford people trying different things that might be incorrect. We have to do this because that's following the science, even when you find out again and again that, and of course, following the science, science well, it, it's all silliness, but they're not following the science. Because as you point out, I mean, it, it just seems obvious that mass are no magic in this, in the, you know, do they help in some little way? I don't know, maybe they do, but it's pretty obvious when you see people wearing masks all the time and yet the the virus just ebbs and flows and, and surges and stops surging without any regard to that. 
I have a lot of pet peeves about this whole thing. One of the, the two things I start with usually is that the two obvious things about the disease that will be obvious to me when I look at it, comparing it to other diseases that we've known for a long time, it's regional and it's seasonal. That's one of the things we know about the virus is that it's regional and seasonal. It behaves differently in different places. That is, this infection rates, how it incubates, how it expresses these various things. And it's also seasonal over time. And once, and they almost never mention this. And this is an astounding thing because it's the most basic thing about the flu, for instance. It's regional and seasonal. And how often do we hear this talked about? Has this been as seasonal? Because it, it, I mean, it does seem like it's been a little bit seasonal. The summer was certainly better than the winter, but it it wasn't night and day. Uh, you know, there like there there seems like there were different surges at different places in the early summer, or fall, or you know, somewhat. It, but we have to look at death counts and not and not uh, caseload, and that makes us right. that gives us a lot of weird false positives because the tests mean nothing basically. Uh, and then there's also the problem of we don't even know the death count because they lie about the death count. They structure it. Right. You know, people talk about structural racism, which is an interesting subject to me. And I've written actually positive things about the idea of what structural racism could mean. Well, there's a structural element, a systemic element to how they report these things that skew our understanding of what's going on. And I think it's being done on purpose. And what is that? Uh, how they count what's what, what kind of COVID death is. Uh, they oh. impute a lot of deaths that are, are yes. obviously not COVID deaths. And it has right. very different meaning uh, to have a dead person, you know, on, on the slab that has COVID in him but was died for some other reasons. And there's a lot of examples of that happening. And right. there's and right. there's a, and the structural part is just like that one that you actually mentioned in, in Common Sense, uh, comparing it to the Fugitive Slave Act, which is one of my favorite examples, is where they, they gave the judges $10.00. If, if it were, was a slave and five dollars if it was found to be a freeman well that produced a lot more fugitive <laughs> slaves than they were out there just simply by structure well the hospitals are paid for covid deaths and they're paid by covid treatment they're not paid by uh just treatments right. Right. so what is that going to do to your statistics it means it raises complete it completely muddies the whole water so yes. i don't believe yes. anything about most of the major statistics purely because you can't trust it uh, on, on that payment thing when you think about the fugitive slave act and you think back then and you realize that this person you know five ten dollars was a bunch of money and back in that time and the difference between ten and five is is hundred yeah. percent uh you know that they're gonna be if there's anything close in fact maybe if it's not close it's going to be a slave so that they make more money. And yet you will today have people say, oh, come on, like the, the hospitals are just going to make it up so that they can make more money. Do you really think they're all so terrible? No, they're not terrible. Someone just died. They're 85 years old. They have Alzheimer's and heart disease and lung cancer and they've got some, you know, diabetes and they've got and they've got COVID. So what do we mark? And maybe they're not really sure what to mark. It's not like they're doing an autopsy on every person who dies. So what are you going to mark? 
You get more COVID if you get more money for COVID than anything else. And it sounds to me like if they die of something else, the federal government goes, why are you telling us? If they die of COVID, the federal government goes, oh, we know why you're telling us. Let us get our check and then write it out. Because there's, you know, so it's just so obvious. And it doesn't, you know, I, I think people, yeah, I don't want to say that they're they're wonderful and perfect for fudging on stuff like this. But if you can't see that when you have incentives pointing this direction, that they're gonna they're going to make a difference. Money motivates. It's it's funny. Studies show how much ten cents on a beer or a coke matters in in people's choices. If you think on something like this that that there isn't a word coming down from on high, whenever in doubt, it's a COVID death. Um, you know, you know it is. The interesting thing about systemic racism is that even a non-racist person who doesn't have ill will in his heart, if there are incentives for for a systemic uh, discrimination, if they're in place, even the good person will behave in a way that has perceivable racist effects. I'm not saying this is a big factor in society. I don't know how a, a big a factor in society it is. I don't think it's as big as people think, but it is something. And we know it's something. Incentives matter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the point. That's the whole thing about the, when you talk about systemic, that's also the funny thing I find about all the talk about racism these days. People talk about how, how you know, systemic racism is, makes, you know, United States evil. Well, the whole point of the theory of systemic racism is not that it's evil, but that it has bad effects even with good people. So getting your if, if you're talking about systemic racism and you're also talking about evil, you've missed the point of your theory of systemic racism. Right. And and right. then talking about it as if it's evil is not the apropos way of doing it. Once again, going to the structural elements and trying to discourage the systemic effect if it exists might be worthwhile. But hyping it up to the, the ultimate evil and it condemns all of society, which is what leftists want to do these days, well, that's just their parading around of their moral virtue. And and that's because they want a certain outcome that has nothing to do with race and has everything to do with political power. Yeah. And and on any of this systemic, it's it's what is it? How do we battle it? You know, the it's pretty obvious that the vast majority of this country, white, black, whatever is not is not interested in further racism is is open to other races and and so how do you solve this problem it's it's like we keep acting like everyone's against us it sometimes it's like i feel like sometimes when i'm talking to republicans and i have to point out you know the voters actually like these ideas so you don't have to be afraid of democracy on these things you know, it's like you got some 80-20 issue. And it's like, well, what, what do the people think? Well, have you not seen the poll? These, <laughs> you know, these these issues can be solved because people want to solve them if it's a real issue. And it's almost as if we never hear, you know, it's, it's like with the criminal justice. Well, where have, have the laws changed? Have we tried something new somewhere? It seems like we want to talk everything to death. Like we can't allow anything to change until every person's heart has been purified in some ritual way. That's not how the world works. Let's find the problem. Let's correct it. 
if there's a couple, you know, racists out in the woods somewhere who hadn't got the message, let's give them the message when they come to town. Let's let's not try to revolutionize humankind and and go into everybody's thoughts, you know, kind of in a Pol Pot type uh, approach to society. Let's find the specific problem and solve it. Well, that's this episode of This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. The title, The World is Falling Apart. Well, at least we know what's going on, right? And if you want to know what's going on, go to thisiscommonsense.org five days a week. Paul's been writing there since 1999.